This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's new worldwide cloud strategy aims for agile software development, collaboration, and using artificial intelligence and machine learning. Acting DOD Chief Information Officer John Sherman writes the new strategy, quote, establishes the vision and goals for enabling a dominant all-domain advantage through cloud innovation at the tactical edge. NextGov reports the strategy outlines how Sherman's office will work with the Joint Chiefs of Staff on an enterprise cloud architecture outside the United States. USDA Chief Information Security Officer Venus Goodwines joining the Air Force. Goodwines, the new director of enterprise IT at the service. FedScoop reports Goodwines served in the Air Force CISO's office before she went to agriculture. The Homeland Security Department's closer to releasing its cybersecurity hiring policy updates. The DHS official overseeing the new policy, Travis Hoadley, tells FCW his agency's targeting a September release date. The first step will be for the agency to publish the rules for public comment. The nominee to lead the General Services Administration, Robin Carnahan, says the government can't implement policy if it, quote, can't get the damn websites to work. If the Senate confirms her, Carnahan says she'll focus on enhancing the agency's cyber posture, building a secure digital infrastructure, and making services more user-friendly. Nick Sinai is senior advisor at Insight Partners. He's former deputy chief technology officer of the United States. Nick, thanks for coming on the program. I imagine Robin's comments were music to your ears because this is something the government has struggled with for a long time. What are the biggest factors in your view still as we sit here in 2021 to get the damn websites to work. Hey, Francis, great to see you again. Uh, you know, it's it's simple. Uh, customers, citizens, beneficiaries, they want simplicity, right? They want the damn websites to work. And so that means it's it's got to be written in a language that's easily understandable. It means that it, it's got to be personalized and easy to log into and, and pre-populate your, your data if the government's got it. And it's got to be secure. Um, so just we have high expectations about about what uh, consumer websites and consumer services do. Uh, we should have high expectations for for those in governments as well. This is exactly what you've been telling me, though, since we first started talking about this after healthcare.gov. The Achilles heel there was the government decided on the requirements instead of thinking, what do we expect the citizen to do? That's the key difference here, right? Absolutely. We, we, we used to do things, a kind of Christmas tree of requirements, and then, and then spec for years and build for years. And now we're in a situation where more and more agencies are, are understanding what the users actually need uh, and are building with, not just for. So the VA is a great example. Uh, back when I was in government, uh, the, the VA had hundreds of websites and hundreds of all-in numbers. It really was confusing for veterans. Um, and if you fast forward uh, to the current day, uh, VA.gov is simpler and easier to use. Uh, it was built with the input of 5,000 veterans. Uh, they have about 10 million uh, people who access content um, and tools and services every month and, and uh, over a million uh, logins per month. 
And so they really have driven customer satisfaction up. I think it's up 30% on modernized web pages that VA.gov has. And, and trust in the VA over a five-year time frame has gone up by 25 percentage points. So yes, we still have a long ways to go, and it was great to see Robin's comments recognizing that and her commitment to it. Uh, but we do have success stories as well. Uh, the two words that I have heard over and over and over again through the years from both people outside of VA trying to use v, uh, the, the VETS websites and inside the organization as far as what they tried to do to build it the way that it is now is simplicity and strategy. Those are the two things I wrote down as you were talking about those, that, that organization, Nick. Um, how does one apply those concepts in a situation where we have a jumble like we had when VA started this journey? Yeah, so I think part of it is having the right talent on the inside. So having the uh, designers and product managers and software developers actually as feds. And then it's having uh, the right set of contractors, both traditional and next generation contractors that have those uh, agile software development uh, skills uh, and really understand how to build um, with the uh, uh, the beneficiary or the veteran or the end user, um, and then it's 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 also about how do we bring in in uh, modern um, commercial software. And as you know, that's something that we've uh, talked about a lot. I'm very passionate about how do we use the 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 best commercial software to to simplify the experience. Uh, for the end user. Are we beyond the point where we still have to remind people embarking on these journeys to use best practices, to use agile development, to use DevSecOps and all of that, Nick, or is that still necessary when we're establishing the building, building blocks of these kinds of projects? Well, I think we can say it, but we also have to prove it and do it, right? So those are, those are two different things. Every RFP and every contractor, you know, they, they say it and they uh, talk about it, but there's a there's a question of of can you do it and can you can you do it well, and that's really measured in in terms of you know do we have good product velocity? Do we have users that are actually staying through the transaction uh, that aren't falling out? Uh, do you have high cu customer satisfaction? Uh, are people able to kind of complete the transaction or get the piece of information? Uh, you know the other piece of this, Francis, that it, I'd be remiss if I didn't get a chance to to chat about. Is, is that we have to go where Americans are, right? And, and digitally, that's not just on our websites, right? That is uh, on search and it's, and it's on social. And so we have to find a way to make sure that, that uh, when Americans are looking for things, and yes, that could be Google or Bing, but it could also be uh, Alexa or, or, or Siri or you know, a number of apps that they use. Uh, when they're putting in inf information, looking for a particular a service or, or a particular location, right, uh, from VA or USDA or, or whatever federal agency, uh, that they find the information or the service that they're looking for. So we have to go where where Americans are looking for information and, and services. Um, so that means better search on our websites. And I think search.gov is a great opportunity that Robin can, can drive um, with some of the shared services in TPS. But we also have to make sure that that's, that's going where Americans are, are starting their, their journey. Uh, and the other piece of this is social, right? So uh, Americans are spending close to two hours a day on social and you know they have questions about government and, and government transactions. And when things go wrong, they complain on social. And so there, there's been an investment in, in um, customer service on social and that's something I'm also excited about. Nick Sinai, thanks very much. It's great to see you as always.
Great to see you, Francis. Thank you. Coming next, an extreme makeover's due for an IT landmark. Straight ahead on Government Matters, remaking the backbone of agency security plans. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The nominee to take over the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency would like Congress to rethink the way it oversees agency security. Jen Easterly says that would require reforming the Federal Information Security Modernization Act. Karen Evans is partner at KE&T Partners. She is former federal CIO and former CIO at the Department of Homeland Security. I teased you, Karen, uh, before we went on the air that as soon as I saw FISMA, I thought of you Lots of people don't like FISMO. What is wrong with it as the government sits today, Karen? A lot of what happens with FISMA is the unintended consequences. The idea is to really have people do risk management, get accountability, um, and then be able to then respond to an incident, have the plans, have everything in place. And what has really happened is, and, and I feel like I can actually, you know, I can be as critical as I want to be about this, is um, because uh, you produce a lot of paperwork. There are a lot of plans, a lot of things in place, but you really don't uh, raise the bar as it relates to the actual security and risk management of the assets. You can be critical, I think, because you're one of the few people, maybe the only person I can think of, that's been at both ends of this. As the EGOV administrator, you had to look at all that paper to see what agencies were doing. And as the DHS CIO, um, you had to produce that paper to demonstrate what your organization was doing. What moves us from that model to a model that is proactive, that gives visibility to both the OMB level and the congressional level, but also achieves the vision that you just laid out, which is an actual risk management framework that results in more secure systems instead of uh, higher piles of paper. Well, and the challenge, and the reason why I say I'm also can be real critical is as the administrator of eGov, one of the things that I had to do was really put a lot of policies and procedures in place for the original FISMA when that was issued, and then work with NIST to put the guidelines and the frameworks in place. I think the challenge is no matter where we have a process and then we're asking for reports, people get very focused on compliance. The idea behind a lot of this is this is a big culture change, and I think when you hear and you listen to a lot of what was said at those confirmation hearings, and I think we're at that precipice, is the culture has to switch from that compliance. And there are several programs that are in place. And the one that I think is really critical to CISA in conjunction with reform to FISMA is going to be that continuous diagnostics and mitigation program, because that is supposed to give them that continuous feed, that continuous information about what is happening across the enterprise and their enterprise is going to be the federal civilian agencies. Is that the policy then that drives the culture? Because we talk all the time, uh, and you and I have spoken a, a hundred times probably, about how culture drives policy. Is this maybe what turns that around, the, the CDM concept, turns that around and, and finally we get policy driving culture, Karen? 
Well, and that really um, is my hope. I mean, the concept when CDM was originally introduced, that um, idea, the constant diagnostics and mitigation um, was to address the, the risk and the threat landscape. And if you look across our threat landscape now, it is continuous just like the intent of that program. And the only way that's gonna work is I dare I say, use the word visibility so that everyone, the CIO, the heads of the departments and agencies, all the way up to the White House has visibility of what is happening on the network so that they can properly manage it. What Congress is also concerned about when you look at some of the recent hearings is what happens when the breach does occur, because we know they're gonna occur how do you then do that partnership with Congress from the oversight and give them the information that they need versus, okay, here's just another report. I'm required to tell you there's an incident. Boom, we had an incident versus really working with them and explaining to them from an oversight role what is happening within the federal agencies. What, uh, how should legislation be crafted by Congress to shift from this compliance exercise to a more a, a better risk management framework. They're going to require reporting of some sort, I imagine. They're going to require metrics of some sort. Is that even possible? Well, and I think all those things are good, but that and and again, you know, what gets measured gets done, right? And so what like with the dashboards and when you can see that progress is happening, it's just not happening as fast as they would like. I'm gonna pivot back to the CDM. They are talking about, you know, they put the dashboard in place and you know, agencies hooking up to that dashboard. And so what the picking what are the right metrics um, and the metrics are going to have to change they can't stay static and they're going to have to change based on okay there are foundational ones and that's compliance because i'm still thinking compliance at one level is still you know dare i say a good thing because it does at least get people focused on trying to meet that measure but what then congress holds account um, maybe one of the best things that Congress could do is shine a light when agencies do good things versus when, oh my gosh, there's another breach or, you know, why is NCISA doing this or what could VA do better or what could DHS do better versus like having, I know this is going to sound kind of crazy, but um, these are the things that are working. Do we need to institutionalize them in legislation? And let's have a hearing so that the public can see how that dialogue should work between Congress and the civilian agencies, the executive branch. Karen Evans, thanks very much as always. Thank you, Francis. I enjoyed it. Coming next, the existential threat the Defense Department can't do anything about. Straight ahead on Government Matters, potential tools for the department to try to deal with climate change. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin calls climate change an existential threat to United States national security. Austin named four incidents in recent years that climate change has driven that have impacted the department. 
Jim Miter is Chief Strategy Officer at Govini. He's former Principal Director for Strategy and Force Development in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Govini's publishing its 2021 Climate, Environment, and Energy Taxonomy for the Defense Department. Jim, welcome. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. These events that uh, Secretary Austin alluded to, you and your team also allude to, for the Defense Department in particular, implications arising from how climate change is shaping the geopolitical security environment as a driver of conflict and instability. Is that conflict and instability limited to other parts of the world, or do some of the events that Secretary Austin talked about also bring that inside our own borders, uh, hurricanes, fires, and so on? Yeah, well, first off, good morning, Francis, and many thanks for having me. I think that's exactly right. The Department of Defense has called on for a range of different missions. And one of those missions includes uh, defense support civil authorities here at home. So when there are wildfire events, you know, earthquakes, things of that nature, um, uh, uh, bad storms. Uh, we've seen in the past the military is called in to support overwhelmed civil authorities. And it's exactly that type of event that we could see more of in the future based on trends that are happening with the climate. And so the Department of Defense wants to ensure that it is has the right capabilities and the, the right uh, operational concepts to be able to support more in that capacity. So it is a global issue to be sure, and instability and uh, dynamics happen overseas, but it is one that can affect us back at home as well. Speaking of trends, what are the trends that you see as you examine these issues uh, in this taxonomy, Jim? So there's a range of different trends that came out. Now, uh, just by brief background, what we did is we looked at all the U.S. government spending in climate, environment, and energy from FY2012 through FY20, in part because we wanted to get a sense of over the end of the Obama administration and with the Trump administration, how much they're actually investing in this space. So we would know as the Biden-Harris administration comes in, what's the foundation upon which they're working from. And one of the trends that really jumped out at us, is quite surprising, is that the Trump administration actually increased investment in this portfolio uh, during its time. Now, surprising because, you know, quite frankly, this is no secret, the Trump administration wasn't prioritizing climate in the same way the Obama administration was. Uh, there was efforts to unwind many of the Obama administration's policies and regulations in this space. And so we expected to see the same thing in terms of federal government investment, and we didn't. And that's likely for a variety of reasons. Part of it could be inertia in terms of what the uh, programs were already underway and getting going during the Obama administration. Uh, part of it is Congress played a role here using the power of the purse. But in many ways, uh, why it, it got an uptick is that if you look at it program by program, many of the investments are just prudent uh, and, and necessary for the government to execute its mission. One of the things that I've learned over the past five years in particular, uh, Jim, that may be a factor there is that every uniform leader that I talk to, who obviously are, are uh, there to provide apolitical input to civilian leaders, talks very clearly and very explicitly about the implications of climate change on his or her portfolio, not making decisions about or, or, or making declarations about what they think about it from a, a policy or, or philosophical level, but just what they're seeing on the ground. And I wonder if that might be part of what's driving this too. It's just the uniform leader saying, you guys can debate whether it's real or not or how bad it is or what's causing it, but this is what we're seeing on the ground, in the air. This is what we need. I wonder if that's part of that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple of different ways in which it affects the Department of Defense. You mentioned already how uh, extreme weather events and changing climate can create stability, and that can lead to conflict in certain areas of the world uh, or, or to natural disasters that we need to respond to back here at home. But the warming of the uh, of the Earth is is opening up new uh, sea passages and uh, lanes in the Arctic. Uh, Russia has not been shy about asserting its presence there, and so that's a, an important area for the department to focus on. Um, and then specifically in terms of military installations, uh, many of them exist in areas that are at risk from flooding and from you know uh, extreme weather events as well, and that can hamper the Department of Defense's ability to operate. Uh, and then. The, the reality is that most of America's military is based here in the United States, and yet most of the missions it's called upon to do are overseas. And so this effort to project power globally and sustain it, especially in austere environments where there isn't a lot of infrastructure, comes with a huge logistics tail to ensure that those forces have the energy that they need. And so it's just prudent for the department to make investments in things like wind and solar and energy uh, capture and storage and distribution technologies that will be more cost efficient and allow the department to be a little bit more agile as it maintains its presence overseas. There's tons of stuff in this, and I wish we had time to talk about more of what you have in here, Jim. Uh, 30 seconds left. What do you want people to take away from this taxonomy? What do you want people to do with it? Well, if you look just at the Department of Defense, what it invests in this space, it's quite wide-ranging. Everything from satellites to sea batteries to smart buildings. And what we were able to do is apply some machine learning techniques to help organize the range of investments there into a coherent whole and to think about it as an effective portfolio. And so if you really want to understand what DOD is doing in the space and figure out how to manage it, then this is a good place to start. Jim, congratulations on this work and thanks very much for joining me to talk about it. Many thanks. You can find a link to Jim's work at govmatters.tv resources. And if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.